narcissism. We are a narcissistic society that has come to believe that life must be interesting all the time. And that's how you get the crackpot politics that we have now. A narcissistic, self-absorbed populace says, entertain me or you have failed. If I am bored, you have failed. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. On today's episode, we're going to continue the conversation I had with Tom Nichols about his new book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. If you haven't yet, you can listen to the first part of our conversation that dropped last Wednesday. Let's pivot over to horseshoe theory. I don't think we've ever explicitly talked about the horseshoe effect on the show before, um, but I do think it's a useful tool for people to think about. So can you lay out the basic premise of horseshoe theory and then maybe describe some ways you see that happening right now? It's less a theory than it is an observation that when you get to the far extremes of political parties, when you get to the far right and the far left, they become indistinguishable from each other, uh, much like a horseshoe, that that if, if you bend a horseshoe around far enough, the two ends touch. And I think that's one of the things we are seeing in the United States that the and, and in other countries, that the far left and the far right have both become anti-system, nihilistic, anti-capitalistic, anti-liberalism, uh, small L liberalism, anti-democratic, um, basically saying the system is uh the system is corrupt and horrible and should be burned down and a strong man should run it. And the only thing that they disagree about is whether it should be a far left strong man instituting central planning or a far right, um, you know, quasi religious leader instituting uh, theocratic rule. But the end is the same, a controlled economy, limited participation, um, authoritarian policies, um, you know, public lots of rules about the limits on public conduct and expression. Um, and all they disagree about really is what the policies are. Um, you know, in one, um, you'll get a lot of crony on the right, you'll get a lot of crony capitalism, um, but no abortion on the other, you'll get a lot of abortion, but no, but you know, centrally planned income redistribution. It's, it's, they're, they're just anti-democratic movements. And what's really interesting about the horseshoe is that um, they are led in both cases by elites because what they really are are vehicles for people who want power. And so the way that they gain that power is to use appeals and, and they tailor these appeals depending on whether their goal is to talk to people uh, on the right or the left, but they tailor these appeals to basically say, this system is irredeemable. And the only way to save it is to overthrow it and replace it with me. And if you drain out all the content, it's the same message. And really, once you get to the content, particularly about things like the economy, um, you know, when look, look at how people on the far right have become advocates of big government. I mean, that's insane. It's, it's, when it, I became a Republican insane. in the 1970s, the whole point was, you know, pe people people who don't understand um, how Republicans became Republicans in the 80s don't understand that you had to live through the 70s first. 
Um, and so we were small government people because we felt like, wow, the Great Society was mostly a failure. We have this gigantic bureaucracy that's proliferating, soaking up all this tax money, you know, uh, regulation, suffocating uh, the, the economy and so on. Um, that makes them, at this point, they're, that plus their protectionism yeah. makes them indistinguishable from what Democrats were 40 years ago, at least on economic policy. Meanwhile, the, the left, which was once all about, you know, the free speech movement and let a hundred flowers bloom. And, you know, the Constitution is, you know, the most extreme reading of the First Amendment. Suddenly, they're the ones that are all about, well, speech codes and safe spaces and trigger warnings and things you can't say out loud and words you can't say in public. That's where the Republicans were 40 years ago. Those were the guys that were trying to get, you know, Lenny Bruce arrested. Oh, and, my God, yeah. Telling you that George Carlin was gonna, you know, uh, you were gonna go to hell. You know, the Irish kids that were told they were gonna go to hell for listening to George Carlin, you know, talk about about. Um, I mean, Carlin today. If you listen to a George Carlin album from like 1973, you wouldn't be able to do that act today. Um, Norman Lear couldn't make All in the Family today, uh, a show that if you haven't, for those of you that are younger. I mean, was about an American, it was a family drama, family comedy about an American family that was, whose patriarch was a complete bigot who dropped racial epithets on national television. You would never, and Norman Lear was a, is a left-wing free speech advocate. Hmm. And so when you get to the far ends of this horseshoe, suddenly you have big government conservatives and puritanical leftists. And, and, it, and what they are all saying is their message always boils down to the same thing. Democracy doesn't, democracy isn't getting me to where I want to be fast enough. So overthrow it and put me in power, yeah. put me in charge. Yeah. Oh, you're frustrated at the system. Great. Let's get rid of it and I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. Yeah. Uh, well, and you know, nobody cornered the market on that um, better than Trump. I alone can fix it. Um, I literally says at one point, I will give you everything you ever wanted. But, but a lot of what Trump said to the white working class was indistinguishable from what liberals were saying to the black underclass 40 years earlier. It's not your fault that you take drugs. It's not your fault that you're unemployed. It's not your fault that you have, you know, children out of wedlock. I mean, Trump was able to say, children out of wedlock. Hey, pff, been there myself, right? Yeah. You know, um, you know uh, and, and basically the, 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 the it's not your fault, the system is rigged against you, big daddy will fix everything is where the two ends of the horseshoe meet. Okay, switching gears again, which by the way, I just, I love switching gears with you because it feels like we can talk about anything <laughs> and, and you have, and you have, and you have wisdom to pass on. Let's just talk stay about away from Led Zeppelin and Indian food and we'll be just fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, some landmines we don't want to step on. <laughs> But we could talk about chess, which I think we talked about in the last podcast. I think I see the chessboard behind you on the wall. Is that the, uh, yeah, uh, the famous chessboard? From my signed chessboard from uh, Gary Kasparov, my one of my prized possessions here on my wall. So, <laughs> so um, globalization uh, and the economy. Globalization tends to be one of the biggest boogeymen now in politics, and it's often right. cited. It's often cited as the reason we've lost some idyllic past and the whole world is on fire. Um, at least that's what you know happens on the right. Um, 
And and at the same time, right, uh, it, it also is the reason that we haven't had a world war since World War II, right? The, the systems that we put and in place. We've had a remarkably high standard of living right. for 30 years. Right. Um, and, and so you push back on that notion here that it's that it is, you know, uh, uh, that it's the reason that we've lost all the good stuff from the past. Can you lay right. that out for us? Yeah. First of all, when people say globalization, I think nine times out of 10, they don't know what they're talking about. Yep. They throw that word out and they say, well, you know, it's because of globalization. It's like when the righties start talking about socialism, you know, um, it, it, in, in kind of the, you know, Disney park, you have to be this tall to get on this ride level. I think if you can't explain socialism or globalization in two or three sentences, you shouldn't be able to continue the conversation. Globalization is the increasingly fast movement of goods and services and money and ideas and people that that has been brought about by technology. And people forget that globalization actually begins in the mid-60s. The first container ships arrive in the late 1960s, and that is the the point of the spear of globalization. Once you could start making things overseas and then bringing them back to the United States— in gigantic quantities, efficiently, there was no way you were going to keep making televisions or cars or whatever it is, you know, once you could outsource them. Because amazingly, it turns out people don't want to pay more money for something they can get cheaper. It's almost like some kind of economic law or something. <laughs> um, my, hometown, my hometown was the um, world headquarters of Spalding the sports company. Yeah. And there was this huge um, kerfuffle. That's an, I, do I sound old saying kerfuffle? There was this huge scandal outcry um, in the early 1970s, which shows you how long ago this was. It's almost 50 years ago because Spalding was going to start making its baseballs in Haiti. And the, and at the time the president was saying, look, I can't pay because Americans, you know, their living standards were increased. And I can't pay somebody enough money to stitch a baseball. This boring, repetitive piecework, you know, that we used to do by hand here in this factory in Chicopee. If you see the men in one of the Men in Black movies, there's a scene where uh, there are, there's some time shifting critter who can move around in time. He goes back to the 1969 Mets game and he says that baseball was made in Chicopee Falls, Massachusetts. Well, he's wrong. It was actually Chicopee. Chicopee Falls is a different neighborhood. <laughs> but he was right that that's where all the baseballs, you know, that if you went to a World Series, you could say that baseball that was made in my hometown. But at some point, you couldn't pay an American worker enough to stitch a baseball. Um, or, or you could, but you then had to charge an arm and a leg for a baseball. And nobody would be playing baseball. Nobody. Well, parents weren't going to buy, they would have bought cheap, you know, foam baseballs and they weren't going to, they weren't going to buy boutique handmade American baseballs, you know, at 40 bucks a pop or whatever it was going to cost to make them. Globalization was just the ability to go and make things cheaper in other places, but also, and I think that the part about globalization that was actually more destructive in this sense, I'll say destructive to the people who think it's destructive, was the cultural aspect of globalization. That suddenly cultures that had never been aware of each other, both abroad 
and within the United States because of increased communications, satellite communications, our interconnectivity. Right. These these cultures were now clashing and in contact with each other in in immediate ways. It shrank the world. I'm going to sound like Tom Friedman, but it shrank the world to the point where suddenly people who didn't, who were blissfully unaware of each other, felt like they were living right next to each other. And I think that's really what a lot of the griping is about, because nobody wants to go back. I, I, I dare anybody to say they really want to go back to a pre-globalized era, um, you know, where uh, literally, you know, making I mean, people forget that making a lot of that cheap stuff includes things like medical technology. I, when I was a boy, syringes were made out of metal and you reuse them. Now think about that for a minute. We think of how we have just taken it for granted that you buy that a needle is a one-shot deal that you throw away, you clip it in a little biohazard thing, you throw it in a box and it's gone. When I was a boy, I distinctly remember big metal needles that were then thrown into sterilizing pots and used again. You were actually having a needle stuck into you that had been put into another person. These are little tiny things that people again, in that nostalgia that they just erase out of their memory to say, yeah, yeah, no, pre-globalization pre was great, but I, don't tell me about the, the needle that my dentist used over and over and over again in a hundred mouths. That, that pre-globalized time, I, I feel a nostalgia for it only in one way, and I will admit to it myself. I miss the ability to disconnect and live a somewhat slower existence on occasion. I can remember, I did not carry a phone with me until my mom um, developed cancer and was going through treatment. And I bought my first cell phone so that I could be reached anywhere. And at that point, I was already 37 or 38 years old. So for me, it was, I am of the last generation, maybe, of people who think it is totally normal to leave the house for a couple of days and go somewhere and no one knows where you are and no one can reach you and nobody can bother you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. But global, on the other hand, globalized communications means that when my daughter calls me from college, I'm not sitting here saying, now, honey, make sure to call me after 10 o'clock so that it's cheap and don't stay on the phone long. You know, because my, which my parents didn't write it. I mean, yeah, it I was ka-ching. to call somebody long distance. That was ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Yeah. My daughter routinely will just, oh, hi, dad. I'm between classes. I thought I'd FaceTime you. Say hi. Tell you I love you. Hey, it's a beautiful day where I am. Campus is looking pretty. Okay. Love you, pop. Bye-bye. You know, and we spend five minutes. Hey, if that's globalization, um, do you really want to do without it? Um, but, but what they mean is, and I'll, this, I'll, I'll just say one more thing that I think is going to piss everybody off. When people talk about globalization and the good old days, what they mean is I want a 2021 lifestyle and I want it at 1970 prices. Yep. I want it to be 1970 and go to church with my Nana with her white gloves and pillbox hat and then have a family dinner where, you know, nobody's looking at their phones and it's, oh, and grandma's kitchen and it's wonderful and all that. But then I want to go back to my apartment, have 180 channels, air conditioning, 
and Netflix. And I want it all on, you know, making a little better than minimum wage. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, but the fact that that doesn't exist is not a failure of democracy. I'm with you on the disconnecting. Man, I miss that. Yeah, I, I, I do too. I mean, I just, there are times when I'm, um, when my phone rings or, you know, I hear a, a the little bink bonk of a text. And the first thing I think is, you know, know, right. I mean, on the I one know. hand, I love that. I would, I, I'm debating, do I need a new iPhone? Do I get, do I keep, do I keep with my excess? Do I get a 13, you know, but then it shows you how spoiled and how, how much we've adapted to it. That when someone texts me, my reaction is to go, Ugh. exactly. Well, you I mean, know, we're like, also like physiologically adapting to this shit too, which is like, you know, it's more. just, I mean, what, what a, what a first world yeah. spoiled brat problem. <laughs> Say, oh man, somebody texted me again on this thing that's more powerful than a Pentagon supercomputer in 1975. <laughs> you know, can't you people understand that I was just trying to watch a, a movie on my phone while I was working out and not text me with your inane issues and problems because it interrupted my listening to something on my perfectly stereo, um, wireless noise canceling earphones. You know, it's moments like that that should make us all feel a little bit ashamed. <sighs> okay, so... We're, we're screwed, Ron, is what I'm saying. That's what, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, let's be honest. The, the, the picture you paint in the book is pretty bleak. Uh, and it, and it, and it, it resonates because, because it, it's all right. I mean, the observations are kind of undeniable. And, and yet, at the end... Um, you know, and I don't want to give, give, give too much away, but, um, you, you do offer a few things that are not the high minded sort of, you know, grand solutions that, you know, you might find in another book about how democracy is, uh, you know, is, is fucked. Um, do you, <laughs> do you, do you, do you want to? That Do was what? the original title of the book. <laughs> Democracy you know, is fucked. I thought it might be Tom speech. Nichols is going to piss you off. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, was, that was the subtitle. Democracy is fucked. Tom Nichols is going to piss you off. <laughs> Remarkably, my editors had some strong opinions about that. Uh, you know, you know how they are at these uh, uppity, you know, university presses. So, um, well, do you, I, I mean, I, I am interested. I mean, I, I'd love for you to give a couple of some, some useful takeaways. Um, whether or not they are hopeful, but but especially things that in listeners to this show, people who've who've sort of been along for this ride where we went up to the brink on election day, November 2020, we barely pulled back from it, right? It wasn't, oh, phew, it was a landslide and everything's going to be okay now. We've rediscovered a sense of civic purpose and unity, and we're going to overhaul all the systems that might've contributed to this calamity. No, that didn't happen. Donald Trump barely lost by very slim margins in a couple of states. And all the people who voted for him and all of the resentment and all of the anger and all of the vitriol, all of that is very much still there. As a matter of fact, I think it's worse now and it's getting stronger. And they're because in a- Today, as we yeah. were recording this, Ross Duthat decided to tell us all not to worry again because oh. Donald Trump's not that competent. Oh, okay. Uh, it'll, be, it, it'll be fine because he's a clown. And, you know, because the last time- Okay. Yeah, I mean, just- this level of complacency is this is partly why I feel so bleak about this. Yeah. 
Um, you know, because and this is this is partly too the reason that I didn't come up with grand, you know, um, grand schemes of democratic restoration because I think those frustrate people because yeah, they, they feel like that's the only option. Then I guess I can't really do anything. That's right. They feel completely out of reach and inaccessible. Yeah. And I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to say, well, you know, if you were a smart, you know, PhD tenured professor like me, you'd redesign the constitution. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and that, nobody's going to do that. I mean, I have constant arguments with people on the left where they say, well, the uh, obvious answer is we have to abolish the electoral college. Maybe, you know, that's an interesting theoretical discussion. If it's not going to happen, right. stop it. Right. Stop it. Let it go. You are not going to rewrite the Constitution tomorrow. Yeah. Um, you know, and and it's a waste of your mental energy to constantly obsess about this when you could probably get a lot more done by having people voting in state and local elections. If you really care about things like gerrymandering, then make sure to get deeply involved in state legislative elections because that's where they pick the districts. Yeah. No, if you if you care about how the vote is counted, then make sure you get out there and vote uh, for people who are on your local um, election committee and maybe be a poll worker. You know, hey, wow. You know, what a crazy idea. You know, a little volunteer an afternoon to do something like that. What kind of crazy talk is that? Um, So I didn't I didn't do the let's, you know. Um, we must have a constitutional convention to rewrite Article Two um, because that's just nonsense, and it does frustrate people, and it frustrates me. Yeah. Um, I, I came up with three things, and they were not in any priority, and they were not exclusive of anything else. I threw th- three things out at the end to say, look, take take on projects that we could actually do. One of them is I, I don't want to reactivate the draft. I don't want to do any of that stupid stuff about, you know, everybody once they go through the Marines. If anything, I think we fetishize military service. And I, I've taught, I'm about to retire um, from military teaching at, at the Naval War College. And over 25 years, what I've come to realize is we fetishize military service. We, it is no longer citizen soldiery. It is thank you for your service. You're our heroes. You're our warriors. Your, you know, Achilles and Ajax. Um, and that's not healthy in a democracy, partly because nobody serves and they don't know anybody who served and they've never been near a military environment. So I had one idea of saying, look, instead of drafting people, no more of this national service being, you know, paid minimum wage to pick up litter under bridges. That's stupid. Um, do the thing that nobody else can do, which is go for four, five, six weeks not even a full summer, just part of your summer after you graduate from high school and go to like a junior ROTC thing where you learn to stand in line, you learn how to make a bed, you have somebody demonstrate to you how a weapon works and why they're dangerous and then put it away. Kind of, I think that would help demystify gun culture. Um, Learn to get up at six o'clock in the morning and stand in line for breakfast with a bunch of people from other parts of the country and then get a little certificate that says, if your country is ever in a national crisis and we need you, you've already had a little training and we'll call on you. If not, you won't ever hear from us again. Thank you for the six weeks that you served your country. Here's what we would pay a recruit for six weeks. Thank you and goodbye. And I think that would give people a certain amount of pride. It would give them a common experience. They could all get to college or to their first job and say, yeah, where did you go for your six? Well, I you know, I was at Fort, Fort Campbell. I was at Fort you know, Devon, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
Common experience, common experience, man. Just common experience. And and again, a common experience that isn't like I worked in a soup kitchen in my neighborhood and then filled out a little slip and I sent it to the federal government so I did national service. Um, There's nothing wrong with soup kitchens, but you need to do something that, that is, again, and I think that's, I have a secondary agenda here, which is to demystify the military and war and weapons and all that stuff. And just because one of the things that really strikes me, the guys of my dad's generation, these guys, and I talk about one in the book, these guys had saving private Ryan experiences and they didn't talk about them. They didn't put them on their license plates. They didn't put stickers saying I served, you know, they didn't do the starship troopers thing of, you know, citizenship, you know, I am a citizen. I served. Um, they just said everybody did it. You know, like you ask these guys, they say, well, yeah, I did that stuff. So did so did Wally, the bartender down the street. And so did Bill, the guy who runs the you know, liquor store. And so did Bobby, the guy who has the, the lumber yard down the way. You know, we were all there. We all did something. Um, the second thing is enlarge the house. Just enlarge the house. Something you can do. We need the electoral. You, you can't abolish the electoral college, but you can make it bigger. And more representative. Um, we can have that discussion. We don't need to change the constitution. We can do it by legislation. I think it would be better for democracy. I think people on the right and the left could, I think they would probably be able to agree that um, uh, that having a more, a more intimate, I can say a more personal or intimate relationship with their elected officials on yep. a smaller scale, like we did for, hey, if you're that nostalgic, you're that nostalgic. Let's go back to the 1950s yeah. when when the number of people represented by a congressman was much smaller. Yeah, it was really like um, 50,000, something like that, 70,000. Yeah. I actually met your congressman. One of the things I love about living in Rhode Island, I've met all my elected officials at some point or another. I, You know, like the local St. Patrick's Day parade, you meet like the entire Rhode Island delegation in Newport. They just show up, you know, like from your senator to your congressman and to your governor. Um and finally, I, I counterintuitively, I actually think that the political parties need to be stronger um, because they've been hijacked as um, flags of convenience for entrepreneurs. And I'm going to I'm going to lay some of this on the Democrats too. Bernie Sanders, if he wants the if Bernie wanted the the nomination of the Democratic Party, here's an idea. Join the Democratic Party. <laughs> I'm sorry. That really, I'm not even a Democrat. And I, I was one of Bernie's constituents. I lived in Vermont for years. That really pisses me off. Like, yeah, I want the nomination of your party. Oh, how long have you been a member? Oh, I'm not a member. I don't want to join your party. I just want your nomination. You know, I mean, give me a, give me a break. At some point you should be, and, and the Republicans should have just simply said, Donald Trump's not a Republican. He's never been a Republican. Mm-hmm. He is completely hostile to everything the Republican Party stands for. Um, you know, th- there is that great scene. And I, and every time I give a talk about this, I bring it up, that scene in Woodward's book where Bannon goes to him and says, how are you going to run? How can you run as a Republican? You're pro-choice. And Trump goes, okay, fine. I'm not. But you've been donating to Democrats. Okay, fine, I won't. You know, like it's like I don't care. Yep. Find me a party. Find me a you know, I And also to, they I won't care. And he was right. They won't care. And I think that parties need to need to recoalesce and reorganize themselves in some way to say, wait a minute, we actually stand for something. If you're a Democrat, that that 
I tell a story in the book, and this is a true story. It was an LA Times reporter. He's talking to a, a, a woman at the Iowa caucuses, a Democratic Iowa caucus voter. Now, think about this for a yeah, minute. Yeah. And it shows you how incoherent and how completely empty of content the parties have become. She says, yeah, um, I'm caucusing for Pete Buttigieg. I really think, you know, Pete Buttigieg is the way to go here. But if he doesn't make it, well, I guess I'll vote for Donald Trump. I'm sorry, but if you're going to a Democratic caucus and your choice is Pete Buttigieg and your second choice is Donald Trump, first, you're an idiot. What do you believe? You don't believe in anything other than whoever I find interesting, what would be fun and cool. And third, your party is not educating you about what it means to be in that party. I'm sorry, do you, do going from Pete, if you can go from Pete Buttigieg to Donald Trump, are you a Democrat? Really? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a guy that uh, Tim Alberta talks to, he talks to these brothers in Pennsylvania, and one of them says, and by the way, our friend Jonathan Last, who is the, you know, if you think I'm gloom and doom, JVL is like, he's the guy that, <laughs> that just is like, he's, he's he's the political equivalent of a prepper at this point. Oh, wow. And, uh, J- JVL lost his mind over this, and, and I quote him on it, and rightly so. Guy says, look, uh, I, I am no fan of Trump. This is a voter in Pennsylvania. And he says, I'm no fan of Trump. He says, but the Democratic Party has just gone too far to the left, and that's why I can't vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Democratic Party, but, but wait, it gets better. He says, the Democratic Party has just gone too far to the left, and that's why I can't vote for Joe Biden. I could have voted for, you know, Pete Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders. Um, <laughs> Biden. And it's like, and you know, like last what? wrote a piece about how I found out about this when Jonathan wrote this piece about it, where his head just you can see the pieces of his brain splattered all <laughs> over the screen of like, oh my God. So you know. Donald, you don't like Donald Trump, but you think Joe Biden is too far to the left, but you would have been more comfortable with Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg. Again, these are not voters who are coherent in any way. And parties used to exercise just a little bit of an educational pedagogical function of saying, this is the platform of the party. This is what we stand for. This is why you're a Republican instead of a Democrat and vice versa. Now it's just like, I don't know, I watched a lot of TV and I threw darts at a board and um, and I don't like the way that guy parts, parts his hair. Uh, uh, well, I'm sorry, you cannot, this is where I become as, as choleric and as pessimistic as Jonathan. You can't sustain a democracy on that kind of behavior. You, you, and you certainly can't make policy out of a voter who says, yeah, I was torn between Buttigieg and Trump. So, what, the, you just ex- no, exit the conversation. Just exit. Just, well, also, yeah. if you're that person's congressman or governor, how do you make policy based on that? What do you, what do you say? What does this person want? And I think what most people want, and, uh, and I'm going to say this, what most people want to show. They want it to be good TV. They want it to be interesting. One of the worst things, and this is an undertone of the book, the word we haven't used two hours of this book is narcissism. We are a narcissistic society that has come to believe that life must be interesting all the time. And that's how you get the crackpot politics that we have now, is that a narcissistic, self-absorbed populace says, entertain me. Or you have failed. If if I am bored, you have failed. 
Well, sleep well, everyone. <laughs> Good night, Wesley. Sleep. I'll, I'll probably kill you in the morning. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Best movie of all time. Best movie. It is actually at the number. It's at the number one uh, slot on my. Start me on the Princess Bride. It's list. an okay movie. Oh no! Down. Are you kidding? An okay. Do you know Mandy Patinkin? Mandy Patinkin. I don't know. If, I don't know if you're a Homeland fan, but like when I saw when I realized that Saul Berenson was Inigo Montoya, my my mind almost exploded. Well, I I like the Princess Bride. I'm just not going down the fanboy road with you. <laughs> Purple lines. And, you know, one of them was, I'll likely kill you. And I think that all the time when people get to the end of these conversations. Well, sleep well. I'll probably kill you in the morning. Most I mean, likely I kill you in the morning. To do with the, when you have like yeah. 10, I think it was 10 to 12% of Democratic primary voters who voted for Bernie uh, switched and then voted for Trump in the general. Well, that's just people saying, you know what? I just want to blow it up. I just want to see, I just want to, there's a, there's a voter I quote in the book who was interviewed by the New York times, a a middle-aged Hispanic voter in Los Angeles. And he said, I don't really like Trump. And I tend to agree with Clinton on more of the issues. He said, but I'm just, I admit, um, I just want to see what's going to happen. Wow. He says a point blank. He's like, it's not interesting to have people getting along with each other. He said, people want to see a fight. And I thought, and, you know, he seems like a very, in the in the piece, you read this piece in the New York Times, he seems like a, you know, sensible 48-year-old guy living in L.A. And he's very upfront. He's I, I, I quoted him because there's a wonderful self-awareness. And he's like, yeah, no, I get it. I don't like Trump. I, I don't agree with Trump. Probably agree with Clinton more. But, I'm, but I admit to this morbid fascination with what will it look like if you just throw a grenade into the middle of the American political system. And that, I'm sorry, that isn't, he might be a good person, but that's a bad citizen. Yeah. It's a bad citizen. Entertain me, even though I know it's probably wrong and it'll probably be bad, but it'll be awesome. This, this is where for me, it all, this comes back to personal virtue. Personal virtue leads to public virtue. And, and I, and those are the kinds of things that we can not only look for in candidates. I mean, although it is really rare to, um, I think now, you know, I'd be able to identify virtue that we actually want to celebrate and encourage in in candidates for public office, unless when you look at the very local level, you you tend to see a lot more of it there. The word we ought to be using is maturity. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things that struck me, I mean, uh, when you hear a guy say, yeah, Trump's bad, but wouldn't it be really funny? You know, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be interesting? There, it's not so much even a lack of virtue as like, what are you, I, I read that and I'm like, what are you, nine? Hmm. You know, what, what, what is this kind of, I mean, when I, when I see people at these, um, you know, school board meetings yelling their heads off and pounding lectern, I'm thinking to myself, were you, were you raised this way? Yeah. You know, well, this is, if your, if your mother was here, would she be proud of you? Because you're like being a 12 year old, mm-hmm. you're losing your shit in public like you're some, you know, cranky pre-adolescent having a meltdown. And and it, 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 I think one of the things, if I'm nostalgic about anything, it's that when I think back to my childhood about the men and women that surrounded me in my neighborhood, I didn't think of them as particularly good or bad people. But what they were, without exception, they were adults. 
there was clearly a line somewhere in their lives that they had transcended where they went from being, you know, kids or, you know, greasers in the 50s. I, sometimes I'd see pictures of people in my neighborhood when they were like wearing leather jackets and tight jeans. Like my brother, my brother was a greaser. You know, he's one of those guys, my half brother, much older than I was. And, and and yet you look at them and you say somewhere along the line, they became adults yeah. and they started dressing like adults. They started speaking like adults and they started acting like adults and they started voting and engaging like adults. And what you see in America now is this nation of, you know, I, I mean, it's like, why is it that every guy losing his mind in a supermarket or a school board meeting is this tubby guy in a tight I'm with stupid t-shirt with a base backward baseball cap and flip-flops. That's like, of course you feel like you can lose your shit. You're dressed like you're eight years old. Why wouldn't you act like you're eight years old? And, and there is no sense of shame. There's no sense of propriety. There's no sense that even if you are right on the issue, this is not the way to express yourself in public. Um, you know, this is not the way you would want your children to see you. This is not the way you would want your parents to see you. We have lost all of that. We are just walking. We are just walking totems of id, mm. of pure emotion all the time. That's all about us. And we don't care. You know, go ahead, film me. You know, if I ever lost my temper in public like that oh. and someone took out a camera and filmed me. Oh, I would be mortified. I'd be mortified but I would live in fear that I would be mortified in front of my family and my friends who I want. I want them. I want my, I, I even, all, even the things I write, even when I'm on Twitter and I drop an F bomb, I think, you know, my daughter's going to read that. Yeah. Um, you know, would my mom, you know, be hitting me upside the head, you know, and we've somehow lost that. So maybe, maybe in, in addition to virtue, there's just this notion of maturity of adulthood that we seem to have lost. Um, in a perpetual enraged adolescence. Yeah. So I have I have an idea for how to wrap this that might be actually constructive. First of all, everyone should either go listen or read the book. Get the book because it's 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 there's, there's a good idea. First of all, like that goes without saying. Um, but if you are sort of you know feeling depressed after this. If you had like one or two books that you might recommend in addition to reading yours, or maybe they're maybe they're you know pieces of culture to listen to or to observe. When what are some really good examples of maybe modern day people? Maybe they're fictional, maybe they're historical, who lived very virtuous, mature public lives, and where where we can where we can begin to model character where we can begin to model our own personal behavior after some of some of um some of the things that we've been talking about wow what a wonderful wonderful question ron um you know uh i this is where i think reading biographies is really a great thing to do um but not about great people but about flawed people and two biographies that i read over the years one um uh, one was um, William Manchester, I read 30 years ago, about Churchill in the interwar period. And the other was, um, um, I, th- I want to say it was Chernow's book on Grant, but it was, about, it was a book about Grant. And then I actually read Grant's autobiography. And I love them both because they are hard drinking, um, you know, totally weak and, and um, emotional men in some ways who smoke cigars. 
um, you know, hard drinking, cigar smoking, flawed men. Um, I, I don't know. That just speaks to me for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and yet in, in the moment are capable of great sacrifice and stoicism, another word that we don't use nearly enough. And if you don't have the patience to plow through um, a, a, a book about Churchill, go watch Darkest Hour, um, which I think is really a good kind of, you know, captures a lot about Churchill. I, I mean, there's a wonderful scene where the king, they're having lunch and the, and Churchill is trying to, you know, steady the nation's nerve to fight the Nazis. And the king says, um, how is it, how, how do you manage to drink throughout the day? And Churchill says, practice. <laughs> uh, and he says, you scare me. The king says, you scare me. Uh, you scare a lot of people. And later when the king decides to support Churchill, these two men, you know, who've come from a lot of privilege, who are facing some very scary things. The king says, you have my backing. And Churchill says, so I no longer scare you. And the king says, a little. <laughs> he said, but, but I shall cope. Um, and I thought, you know, this is, this, this was two mature, you know, sensible human beings putting aside their differences and saying, this is how we have to do this. Um, so that's uh, the other thing, and this will strike people as a kind of a weird recommendation, but there are two really good books and I'm just reading one and I finished the other. Um, years ago, David Frum wrote a book called How We Got Here, the 70s, How We Got Here. And every time you're feeling nostalgic, go read it because it's, 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 it's a reminder that the 70s were, how screwed up the 70s were. But I'm also reading, um, people can't see it, but I'm holding up Ron Brownstein's book about 1974 and how LA in 1974 changes the American culture and you know, kind of is the turning point from the 60s to the 70s and then to modern American culture. But again, as cool as it is to look back at, you know, movies like Chinatown and, you know, stuff that's gone, ask yourself, wow, it's a really interesting book. Do I really want to go back there and live in that? And I think the answer is no. So that's my recommendation. Read a good book about Churchill or Grant, both very screwed up guys who are not personal models of virtue. If Grant fails a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then go back and read a book about the 70s and ask yourself what you're really nostalgic about. That's a perfect way to end this. Tom, it's always a delight to talk to you. I feel like we could talk for, uh, for, for hours and hours. But before I let you go, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am at Radio Free Tom. Uh, you can find me regularly writing for The Atlantic. Um, and, um, you know, I'm around. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.